This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. There's a lot to say about salvation, a lot more to say than can be put into a single lesson because it's everywhere throughout the New Testament. There's a lot that's said, and it's said in a lot of different ways. And what can happen sometimes is that one school of thought will latch on to a particular verse. I don't know if it's because it's their favorite or if it's because they like that message or what, but they'll fixate on that message and they'll make that the lens through which they're going to interpret the rest of the scriptures instead of letting the verses speak for themselves. And I'm getting ahead of my notes here. But what I decided I wanted to do as I revisited this topic was thoroughly examine each individual passage, give it as much attention and time as it needed to give its message. And in the process, I'll be examining arguments that come from those passages, and I'll save any that pull in arguments from other passages to examine later. I've hinted at what my process is going to be, or, or, or my methodology that I have here in my notes, but I'll go ahead and click through the slides so that you can see it. This afternoon, we're going to talk about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. This is a passage that I've always considered to be a proof text, a place that we can go to demonstrate a truth about salvation conclusively. There's a lot of other people even in the churches of Christ, that don't consider this to be a proof text. That there's too many strong arguments that you can make from Acts 2.38 against the plain reading of Scripture that it's better off to avoid it if necessary. If you're going into a debate with somebody, then it's probably going to come up. But if you're just going to present a topic like salvation, then maybe you can skip this verse. And in my studies, I've come to think that this is a very loud verse, if you will. That the message from verse 38 of Acts 2 is very clear. All we have to do is carefully read the text and allow it to speak for itself. So the methods that I'll be using this morning and throughout this series of studies throughout my study of salvation going forward, the first thing that I'm going to do is give equal weight to all scripture. I believe that this is a principle that we can pull from the scriptures from 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, where Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What I see here is Paul telling us how the value of Scripture is measured. If it's given by inspiration of God, then it's valuable. And if it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, then it's valuable. 
And how do we know which of the scriptures are valuable according to this standard set forth by Paul? Well, he tells us that they all are. And so if we're going to go to our Bibles and pick one verse and say, this is the most important verse to understand about salvation, you can understand everything else that the Bible says about salvation through the lens of this verse, then we're doing Bible study wrong. Because each passage is inspired by God. Each passage says what it means and means what it says. We can look at a verse like Romans 9 and 11, and we can understand what that verse means in its context, and then we can look at another verse like Acts 2.38, and we can understand what it means in its context. But what we should not be doing is pitting the scriptures against each other is saying, well, Acts 2.38 says this, so Romans 9.11 can't be saying what I think it must be saying in its context. Or vice versa. Romans 9.11 says this about salvation, so Acts 2.38 can't be saying what I think it says by a simple reading of its context. Instead, what we should do is do a full study of a topic like salvation and harmonize the passages that talk about it in different ways so that they are all true. I mentioned also that I would be talking about debates that happen around a scripture, and for the time being, I'm only going to be addressing those arguments that are made from the context for today's study of Acts 2.38. There's a lot of arguments that get brought in from other passages. We'll go, some people will go to uh, a book like Romans and they'll pick their favorite scripture out of there and they'll say, well, Romans says this about salvation, so how can Acts 2.38 be saying what you say it says? And I'm not going to deal with those for now. I'm going to give Acts chapter 2 its due diligence and allow it to speak for itself. And when the time comes, I'll look at a chapter like Romans 9 and I'll give it a full study and allow it to speak for itself. And hopefully, if I'm given enough time, by the end of this study, I'll be able to layer all of those meanings on top of each other and present a full picture of salvation. So, on to Acts chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we will spend the rest of our time this afternoon in this study. I'm not going to read every verse there. uh, For the time being, I'll summarize the context Hit the highlights, and you can have your Bibles open so that you can check me and make sure I don't leave out anything important. Where is the, when and where is this taking place? Well, we're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, about 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And we're told the audience who is going to be hearing the message that Peter is going to teach on this occasion. We're told that it's Jews out of every nation And it lists a whole bunch of nations there, I believe starting in verse 9. All kinds of cultures, all kinds of languages that are spoken throughout these nations. The first thing that happens is that the Holy Ghost and tongues of fire fall on the apostles. And they begin to speak in tongues. If you're taking notes, I think that one's going to be important in a later study. 
So when Peter begins preaching, this is the outline of his sermon. He quotes the prophet Joel. He gives him a lengthy quotation. And then he says that Jesus is the reason that Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled right now. He specifically talks about darkness falling on the face of the earth. And that's something that had just happened back during uh, Jesus' death was the sun had turned dark. He talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon men, and that's something that is happening right then and there. He says Jesus is the reason that these things are happening. He quotes Psalm 16, which is about uh, another uh, prophecy of the Messiah. And Peter says Jesus is written and the, the apostles are witnesses of his resurrection. And finally, he quotes Psalm 110 about the resurrection of the Messiah. And he tells, finally, he tells the audience that they are responsible for the death of this Jesus who is the Christ. And then the Jews, the audience there, they have a question. They, they respond to his sermon in two ways. The first is that they believe the message. That's what that phrase that they were pricked in their heart means. And they ask a question. Now, Peter has given them this message. He's trying to demonstrate to them that Jesus is the Christ and that they're guilty of putting him to death. And so they ask a question. Well, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responds. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Again, make note of that. I think that's going to be important in a future lesson. So, let's carefully examine this context and see what Acts chapter 2 is trying to tell us about salvation. The first thing that leaps to my mind is that the audience belief must not have been sufficient to save them. All that they've been taught so far is that Jesus is the Christ and that they're guilty of his death, and they believe these facts. And yet, when they ask the question, what do we do? Peter tells them that they have more to do. We could rewrite their question to say, what do we do about our guilt of having the Christ killed? And that reflects that they believe in their guilt. So how could Peter respond? Because his response is going to demonstrate the doctrine that Peter believes needs to be taught at this moment. He, he's teaching believers in that Jesus is the Christ. And what is he going to, how is he going to respond? Well, he could respond in a couple of ways. And it really hinges on whether or not he knows that they believe. And it depends on what they need to do about their guilt. So let's imagine for a moment that in order, to, in order for their guilt to be written away, in order for it to be forgiven, all they needed to do was believe that Jesus was the Christ. And let's imagine that Peter doesn't know that they believe. Then how should he respond? He should tell them, well, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be forgiven of your guilt. But that's not what he says. He tells them something different. 
So what do we draw from this? Either they're not forgiven based on their belief, or he does know that they believe and they have something else to do. So let's imagine then that belief is the thing that they need to do to be saved. And let's imagine that Peter does recognize their belief. This is kind of the broad agreement across biblical scholarship that Peter recognizes that they believe. If he recognizes that they believe, and that's what they need to do to be forgiven of their guilt, then what does he need to tell them? Well, I think he has the words to tell them that they've been forgiven by their belief. Peter's traveled with Jesus for three years and heard Jesus tell probably dozens, possibly hundreds, maybe thousands of people, your faith has made you whole. Go and sin no more. How poetic would it have been if belief was what was going to make these Jews whole for Peter just to echo the words of Christ? For him to preach this message that Jesus is the Christ and you're guilty of his death and they say, well, what do we do then? And Peter says, you believe and it's made you whole. Go and sin no more. But that's not what he says. Based on Peter's response, the simp- our simple understanding of this text is that their faith has not saved them. Forgiveness for their guilt does not occur at belief. Now, there are some arguments that are made from Acts chapter 2 that make the case that these Jews are not asking, what do we do about our guilt? But instead, that they know that they are saved and they're asking a different question. So that argument starts like this. Well, the Jews say, men and brethren, so they know that they're saved. After all, we believe in godly adoption and through that work by God, we are made brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when these Jews say men and brethren, what they're saying is, brothers in Christ, what do we do now that we are saved? But that's not what Peter taught. Peter didn't teach fellow heirship and adoption with Christ. He taught them about their guilt. And, that's, and that Jesus was the Christ, and that's all that he taught. He hasn't taught fellow heirship in Christ. And Peter calls them men and brethren. Back in verse 29, before they have asked what they must do to be saved, in the middle of his teaching about Jesus being the Christ and about their guilt in his death. So this argument is inconsistent with that fact and with the fact that Peter continues to preach after he calls them men and brethren. He continues, if you will, if Peter is saying that they are now brethren in Christ in verse 29, then why does he need to keep making them feel guilty? Why do they need to continue to be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ? So this argument reads into the text what is not there. Another argument from Acts chapter 2 is that we don't have 
all of Peter's sermon in verse 40. It's recorded that with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So Peter teaches Jesus is the Christ and the audience is guilty of his death. And the Jews are so overcome by their guilt that they interrupt the sermon to say, what do we do? And Peter says, well, repent and be baptized. And then he goes on to teach them, actually, never mind. You don't need to be baptized. Instead of saying, what you're getting ahead of me, guys, I've got more to teach you about salvation. Now, I don't want to pour contempt out on this argument without giving it due consideration. Is the assumption that Peter went on to teach more about salvation and went on to teach that it's really your faith that saves you and then you repent of your past life, you confess on the name of Jesus and you're baptized for some other reason than remission of sins? Is that a reasonable assumption? This assumption is going to be made in other passages that I'm going to study as part of this series. It doesn't have anything to say about the fact that the record of Peter's sermon stops with repent and be baptized. If he really had all of that, all, a whole bunch more information, important information about salvation to say, why wasn't it recorded? Now, I haven't had a chance to ask anybody that's making this argument this question, so I have to imagine what the response would be. I imagine that it would be, well, because those teachings are going to be written about later. And I have to tell you, I don't have a good answer to that. Or a great answer to that, I should say. I think I have a fine answer. But not a great one. I believe that the scriptures were inspired by God. And I believe that God had the scriptures written in the way that they were written. Because we're supposed to understand them. And so if God didn't want all of the picture of salvation to be recorded in Acts chapter 2, well then it's within his right to not have it recorded that way. And as I've already made the case for you, I don't think that the entire picture of salvation is presented in this chapter. But this argument ignores the fact that Peter has taught nothing about salvation up to verse 38. In verse 38, he does teach about salvation, and then nothing else about salvation is recorded. If there was more to say about salvation to this audience than repent and be baptized, and there was a lot more to Uh, unravel for this audience so that they could fully understand what they needed to do to be saved, exactly what they needed to do to be saved in this moment, then I think it's just reading too much into the text to say that, well, it's all there hidden in in verse 40. It's all hidden behind that phrase, with many more words did he teach them. There's nothing in the context to suggest that the way the sermon unfolded was Peter taught the 
Christianity of Jesus. He taught the guilt of the Jews. He said, repent and be baptized for his salvation, and then undermined the clear reading of what he said there in verse 38. There's a final argument from this text that gets a lot more involved. Hopefully I won't bore you too much with it. And that's centered around what the word for means in verse 38. The argument goes, well, when Peter tells the Jews, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, he is telling them that they are saved. That's where the message of salvation by faith is. Because he says, repent and be baptized because of the remission of sins. And the Bible uses for, or the, rather I should say, the translators of the original manuscripts into English use for to say because elsewhere in the scriptures. But do they do so here? In order to understand whether or not they're doing this, we're going to have to do some looking at Greek. Now, we might not have to look at Greek if we could look at a bunch of translations and see that over time, as human understanding of the Greek language has grown, we can see that the translators have found the correct way to translate this word. We would see it change from for to another word. In fact, it does not do that. Across 16 translations that I surveyed, the word here translated for, and I'll pronounce it for you here in a second, is, trans, is translated as for 13 of 16 times. And these are from translations as old as the King James to as new as the New American Standard Bible 2020 edition. It's translated to twice instead of for, and it's translated unto once. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that there is broad agreement that the word for belongs right there in that verse. But it doesn't really tell us whether for is supposed to mean to or because of. In my opinion, if there was a understanding of this word that meant it was supposed to go one way or the other, then the translators would have gone ahead and changed it. But they didn't. That's okay. We can look at uh, the original Greek and we can look at the, what the word means throughout the scriptures or even in uh, secular writings to understand how it was used in the first century. So the, Greek, the word in the Greek is ice. It's might not be pronounced ice. I'm going to call it ice because it makes sense with other words that we have built off of this word in English today. The definition, if you look it up in Strong's, there's a bunch of stuff that gets peppered throughout, and it made it a little bit difficult for me to understand my first time through. So what I did was I pulled all of those out, and I've typed it up here for you without the parenthetical statements or the scripture citations that the Strong's translators used as they were explaining why they translated the word this way. So, ice is a primary preposition. It means to or into, of place, time, or purpose. Also in adverbial phrases, often used in composition with the same general import, but only with verbs expressing motion. So if that means nothing to you, 
I think I'll be able to explain it a little bit better than that. Ice being primary means that it's a root word. You can't go back in the history of the Greek language and find a word that uh, was built into ice. It is a root word. Ice being a preposition means that it is used to describe the relationship between two subjects. As an illustration, I am standing on this stage. On is the preposition. It describes my relationship with the stage. That's what ice is. That's the type of speech that ice is. The relationships that ice describes are of place, meaning physical space, time, meaning past, present, future, etc., or purpose, meaning that the relationship between these two things is that one is to achieve the, the purpose of another. It's also used in phrases that describe action. That's what an adverbial phrase is. And it's used in conjunctions or to make compound words that describe physical motion. And we can see from the context of Acts chapter 2 that what we're dealing with is the primary preposition. We're not dealing with an adverbial phrase, and we're not dealing with a composition that expresses motion. So we could rewrite the phrase, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, as repent and be baptized to the remission of sins, or into the forgiveness of sins. In my opinion, this reinforces the simple reading of the English of the text, where we read in the context that Peter's message was about who Jesus was and what the Jews were guilty of. And his answer to their question, what do we do, is, well, you need to do this so that you can get remission of sins, or repent and be baptized into the remission of sins. You are not there now, you need to go into it, and this is how you get there. Importantly, because is not in the linguistic range of ice. That's just a fancy way of saying nobody would ever use ice to say because. The last argument that I'll have a look at today, and I got a little bit ahead of my slides here, is that ice can be translated unto. And unto is kind of a mysterious word, so maybe within the range of unto, we can, uh, we can pull out this doctrine of uh, baptism not being required for salvation based on Acts 2.38. This one is an easy one to meet. Unto is an old word. It's, I call it a mysterious word because it's an old word that we don't use anymore. It, was, it started to be used in the 1200s, and it stopped being used in the 1700s. So by today, unto has not been used for 300 years. But that also means that the meaning of unto has not changed since it was written in the King James Bible. So what does unto mean? You can look it up rather easily. It means to or until. So we could rewrite Peter's message as being repent and be baptized until remission of sins. 
Well, what, what would that mean? That would mean that they don't have remission of sins yet. They need to repent and be baptized until they receive it. So this doesn't change what we understand from the simple reading of the text. At this point, I have not found any more arguments from Acts chapter 2 about alternative understandings of what verse 38 means. So this is the rest of what I have to say about this debate, about what this verse means. Forcing the claim that Acts 2.38 does not teach baptism as essential for salvation because other verses in the New Testament teach contrary to that idea pits the scriptures against each other. It says, you've got Acts 2.38 and I've got this other verse and we're going to smash them against each other until one wins. This is not how Christians are supposed to study the Bible. That method is how atheists and agnostics study the Bible so that they can find contradictions and say, look here, your Bible preaches two different messages so I can throw the whole thing in the trash. I don't have to listen to it anymore. I am of the mindset, and I think that this is the mindset that Christians should be of, that everything in the Bible is true, that a verse means what it says in its context. And so if a verse is unclear about a topic, then maybe another verse can help us bring clarity. But what we should not be trying to do with Scripture is take one verse and say, I don't like this message, or this message doesn't fit with the doctrine that I'm bringing to my Bible study, and so I'm going to go find another one that I can use to invalidate, contradict, and overturn the meaning of the initial scripture. We should be looking to harmonize the message of the Bible instead of making it fight itself. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.